Last week, I finished the new six-episode documentary from British filmmaker Adam Curtis called Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World. Curtis has made many avant-garde films for the BBC, including Hypernormalization, The Century of the Self, Bitter Lake, and The Mayfair Set. In his most recent film, Curtis attempts to explain the static nature of our society and how the ideas of individualism, personal emotion, and psychology act to hold it in place. He tells stories of people who attempted to create alternative narratives, how these efforts mostly failed, and what we may learn from them. His aim is to simply present an alternative method by which to, by which to observe the world. Curtis's thesis is summarized in the film through this quote by the late American anthropologist David Graeber. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make, and we could just as easily make differently. This week, Curtis recorded a lengthy interview with the Red Scare podcast, and I pulled some interesting quotes from that conversation that I believe will help frame our discussion today. Money corrupts, but distrust eats the soul. And that's the problem. You've got the two. You've got money corruption and distrust. I wanted to show where the distrust comes from and how disempowering it is. We may be far stronger as human beings than we think. And although you can keep us in a state of hysteria online by bombarding us with memes and all things like that, you can't, what you can't do is actually change the way we think and feel underneath. We're quite strong people and I really like that idea. I want a politician that comes back and says that to us. Actually says, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. Because otherwise you're going to be in this forever. You're going to be in this unreal, panicky, suspicious, distrustful world. And I think people are so exhausted at the moment by this level of distrust and suspicion that they might go for that. They might. The truth is all the institutions who are supposed to govern you are really banal. The people who run them are very dull. The think tank people are so dull. They all lack imagination. All of them. Because they believe money is the measure of everything. They're utilitarians, really, by nature. They're just dull. And actually, they spend all their time trying to mythify everything. And suspicion is part of that. We think Mark Zuckerberg is really powerful. Maybe he's, maybe he's not. This is related to that irony thing you're talking about. It eats the soul. It really does. And yeah, you've got to break out of that irony. I mean, there's an argument that irony might be one of the real defense mechanisms against the future. It's part of that idea that nothing can be trusted. I'm not arguing for deep, horrible, total sincerity. I'm arguing for a skepticism about irony as much as a skepticism about those who say, trust me, a confident intelligence about it rather than just giving into it. I think every age has a moment when its journalism becomes boring and it dies. And out of that comes a new kind of journalism that connects with people because it connects as much emotionally. I have a great faith in journalism because I think it's part of mass democracy. It's part of telling people, oh, have you thought about looking at the world in this way? Welcome, comrades and friends, to the Highlands Bunker podcast from the shadow of Rockford Tower behind enemy lines. This is Rob in the Bunker studio. Carl is monitoring the levels from a secure remote location. 
Our guests today have embarked on a new journalism project of their own, one that aims to present our current situation as untenable and offers a program to improve trust within the institutions meant to govern us. They have launched the website fightdecorruption.com that calls for explicit ethics reform in the state legislature and reports on the behavior of our elected representatives that creates an environment of corruption and suspicion. Joining us uh, first is local progressive advocate Jack Guerin. Hello, Jack. Thank you. Uh, a director uh, at the Delaware Coalition for Open Government, John Flaherty. Hello, John. Hey, what's going on? Glad, I'm glad you were able to join. Uh, and our old friend, uh, proprietor of the Delaware Liberal, Delaware Liberal blog and the former Leg Hall aide, Steve Tanzer. Hello, Steve. Good to see you again. Yep. Glad you were able to join. Um, so, John, first, um, you've been at this uh, sort of game a long time, um, trying for more transparency, trying to uh, the old hold them accountable. Um, can you give us a little bit about your background and uh, the Delaware Co uh, Committee for Open Government uh, itself before we get into the, the new project? Well, Delaware Coalition for Open Government was formed back in 2006, and it was formed in the middle of the effort by State Senator Karen Peterson to uh, have the Freedom of Information Act include the Delaware General Assembly. She had introduced that bill back in January 2003, and it finally passed and, and was signed by then-Governor Markell in 2009. Uh, that was a, a real watershed moment because the General Assembly had oftentimes uh, used their exemption to keep things in the dark and everything. Senator Peterson showed the uh, patience and perseverance and the political uh, uh, will to get that bill passed, and it's been a big achievement. Before that, I was a lobbyist for Common Cause of Delaware uh, for 12 years. And so I've been around uh, Lake Hall, as uh, Steve has for many years, and uh, we've seen the good and the bad down there. Well, how are we, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and there's been a lot of bad that's had a lot of uh, impact. And I, I want to get into some of those details and some of the stories that you document um, soon. But first, I just want to talk about a background of this project. Um, sort of what the gen genesis of it was, just really calling for specific ethics reform um, and the and sort of the the, pro the program that you guys have built. Um, Jack, can you talk a little bit about the, the website itself and what how the idea came to be? Yes, this uh, it actually started with a, an article in, in Blue Delaware in 2018. Um, and I was very impressed by by the documentation in that in that article. It had a whole uh, very extensive uh, legal document that I was able to uh, to download, which uh, documented Microloan's investment in the Delaware Board of Trade, and what Blue Delaware was uh, saying could could be a case of uh, of insider trading. But uh, that that article was kind of brushed aside, and as I began to do more research on it. I learned that the that the Public Integrity Commission doesn't have oversight over the Delaware General Assembly, and that re, in reality, that our General Assembly, in, in the words of uh, Debbie Moreau, who's the lawyer for the Public Integrity Commission, actually functions on a sort of honor system, like, uh, and which may work well for for Boy Scouts, but it hasn't worked for 
a few members of our General Assembly who've taken advantage. And that's what we've tried to do uh, to document that more extensively than it has been in the press so far, to do some deeper uh, research on uh, the four four legislators that we've uh, that we profiled there. Yeah, I was surprised, and, and maybe you can fill in some, some gaps for me. Um, you know, there was another Andrea Bennett sort of uh, drama uh, recently in the last six, three or three months, I guess. And, um, you know, I hadn't really thought about um, it very much over the past several years. Obviously, I'd seen stories about, you know, sort of suspicious, corrupt behavior, uh, but it never really resonates with me. So I, I took a second look and looked just at what the ethics sort of oversight program was in the legislature. And all I saw in the House was basically the oversight is run by an ethics committee uh, and the chairperson and co-chair are the leaders of the House. So that's it. That's that's the that's the oversight. And I said, oh, now I understand why um, why this is an issue, because there really isn't any. Um, apparatus or uh, any infrastructure to do any oversight, uh, any third party oversight at all. Um, so I, I, I was I was very much surprised by that. Um, Steve, can you talk a little bit about um, how how this stuff does work when there maybe you can use one of your favorite examples, you can pick one and just sort of uh, can explain to us what the process is like now or the lack thereof? I, I think lack thereof is the appropriate term. Um, the, <laughs> the, let, let's take the House Ethics Committee for an example, okay? The members of the House Ethics Committee are also the members of House leadership. Uh, in the House leadership, you have, in my opinion, one of the most flagrant examples of unethical behavior. And that, of course, is Valerie Longhurst, who um, managed to parlay her legislative position into a close to a six-figure-a-year job as the executive director of the Delaware uh, Police Athletic League. Um, if you look at the board of directors at the time that she got the job for the Police Athletic League, it, it was peopled with ex-legislators, uh, former Speaker of the House Terry Spence, Bill Oberly, Roger Roy, and of course a lot of police people. So clearly, um, if there was going to be an ethics complaint about whether she used her position as a legislator to get herself uh, this, this six-figure-a-year job, the person who is chairing the committee is the person about whom the, uh, the complaint would have been lodged. Uh, similarly, in the Senate. Now, the Senate has changed this year because there is new leadership in the Senate. But when Nicole Poor got her job she had only been on the in the legislature, what John, for about two years, mm -hmm. and she got that position as the head of a real waste of money. It's called uh, Delaware Jobs for Delaware Jobs for Delaware Graduates. It was a program that Pete Dupont created back, like in the late seventies, early eighties, and of course he made it a quasi-private um, position because that way they wouldn't have to have any federal oversight over it, and. She became the executive director of that. Another $100,000 a year plus salary. Guess what? She was, at the time, the Senate um, majority leader. So, again, that means she was the head 
of the Senate <coughs> Ethics Committee. It's a misnomer. It, it's an oxymoron. It's like the Public Integrity Commission, which is essentially clearinghouse for like lobbyists' filings and things like that. But they don't really do any oversight. It's it's it, the impl implicit in Public Integrity Commission is someone is actually looking closely at the public integrity behavior of public officials. However, it's not true. Yeah, I I have a general question, and I, and anybody can kind of chime in uh, with what they think. So, based on a conversation that Jack and I had a couple of days ago. I actually was hanging out with uh, outside, socially distanced. Uh, it was cold, but we did it anyway because we just wanted to drink beer. Uh, but Carl Baker, the ex-news uh, journal report investigative reporter, um, who was talking to me about his new project, something he's looking to do. Uh, by the time this comes out, it might have rolled out already, but I, I suggest everybody go look for it. It's going to be called, it's a new uh, sort of way to get journalism. It's going to be called Ar News Arcade. So you sign up and all the investigative journalism pieces that he does, you can get for a quarter. So you just click on them and it's a news, news arcade system. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see how it turns out. But we had this conversation about why the news journal, for example, um, what kind of stuff they would publish and what kind they wouldn't regarding ethics changes, the behavior and, and, and the corruption in the, in the general assembly. And, you know, it, it got to the point where, you know, they will report it as a as a controversy, as a drama um, and and they'll report those details. But it doesn't seem to ever have any traction. There's never a there's never a next step. Like everybody says, oh, look how corrupt that person is, as Steve just explained. Like, look, look at this person getting, uh, you know, uh, this this easy half the year, $100,000 job that's run by the people they work with at this nonprofit. So it's not, it's not like it's a secret, but it, ne it, doesn't, it doesn't capture the attention or the imagination of the public in such a way that it has any sort of outcome other than uh, the people who know it don't like it. Why do you think that is? Bob, I think uh, most of the legislators have their own agenda and they're not willing to take on their colleagues to... Uh, uh, hold somebody accountable. The rare example has to be John Atkins. John was uh, a Republican legislator who committed uh, a whole series of personal uh, indiscretions, and uh, he made the news media. And uh, he, there was so much pressure from the Republican caucus that John Atkins ended up filing a complaint against himself with the Health Ethics Commission back in 2007. So Atkins was in the unique position of being both the plaintiff and the defendant in his case. And uh, it was pretty awkward. He ended up having, he resigned his seat. Uh, his seat was taken over by Greg Hastings. Uh, Atkins then changed his party to Democrat and got elected as a Democrat the next election. <clears throat> and one of the reasons why they soft-pedaled Atkins, I believe, in the Democratic caucus, I had heard that he was the deciding vote in electing Schwarzkopf as speaker back in 2009. So most of them are not willing, except for Kowalko. John is a, John uh, seems to be a rather fearless uh, legislator and is not worried about stepping on his colleagues' toes. Most of them don't take it upon themselves that they are responsible for the actions of their colleagues. 
And I can tell you one thing, when Steve and uh, uh, Almacetti had that radio show, boy, I tell you what, there was a sigh of relief in Legislative Hall when they took uh, Steve and uh, Almacetti off the radio station because they listened to that. They took the heat and uh, they hated every minute of that. Yeah, the irony, of course, of uh, the, the LaFerre Atkins is ultimately the Democrats had no choice but to... I mean, after what was it, the second offense where he was he was caught speeding or something, and then and, and cussed out the the police officer, yes. and I mean, it it, got, it became even too much for them. But I mean, it is true that I mean, first of all, Atkins, you may be right, John. I don't know if it's true, but I mean, you may be right that he was the deciding vote to put Pete in as speaker. It's also true that the Democrats circled their wagons around Atkins because that's when they got the majority. 2008 mm -hmm. is when they finally took over the House majority. It was, it could have been, it turned out that it wasn't, but it could have been that the Atkins win would have been the decisive win that made it 21 to 20. It turned out the Democrats ended up, I think it was like 23, uh, 18 or something like that. Yeah. And I guess my question goes to this idea where that this attention uh, whether it comes from from Al and the radio, whether it comes from this website, whether it comes from me, um, you know, certainly legislators don't like bad, you know, don't don't like the pressure. Um, but what I haven't seen is any, you know, it, it's still transactional. So the pressure, while it's while it, it goes into these political decisions, doesn't seem to impact somebody's feasibility as an elected representative. It doesn't really change their position of power it means people have maybe have to the transaction becomes different you know it's a little bit of this a little bit of that but but it, for some reason these people i guess sort of accept um corruption to a certain level and 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 for some reason these stories don't resonate with with people who could actually do something about it you know and I, and that's what i'm that's what i'm interested in i'm interested in what you guys thoughts are about that well i think a lot of people don't have the patience to stick with it for the long haul people get very frustrated very quickly very easily and in many cases you gotta you gotta stick around it took karen peterson seven years to pass the uh, uh freedom information act to include the general assembly she had many obstacles many uh, log jams to, to unplug but uh i look on jack's website for example as the beginning not as the end uh when i was reading jack your website the uh, Fight Delaware Corruption website uh, again last night, I noticed the uh, uh, almost anguish uh, in his voice from the uh, state senator that you had interviewed and you had uh, put the transcript of that conversation on your website. So it, it does look like, uh, uh, Robert, look, it does look like it's temporary, but it does have a huge impact on these guys. They don't want to admit that they, they used to, you know, they listened. They never admit they listened to the Almacetti show and heard Steve Tanzer take it into task. But they do listen when they shut their doors down there in the leg hall. And they do read Jack's website. So, uh, But it, it takes an ally, a legislative ally, to really take the bull by the horns. And that's what we haven't seen recently down there. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, I guess you're referring to the, uh, the Pardee uh work that Jack has done, the, the the articles that he's looked at and some of the analysis and the statement he's gotten. Jack, why don't you walk us through the situation 
um, and the work you've done uh, on this case specifically and give the give everybody sort of a flavor of what kind of uh, what kind of journalism, what kind of reporting is up on the website. Uh, <clears throat> this is a conflict of interest which involves uh, John Pardee, Trey Pardee's uh, brother, <clears throat> who's a, a very active real estate developer in uh, in Kent County, and um, <clears throat> he owned uh, eleven acre or tw ten acres that was uh, next to Delaware Turf. Delaware Turf is uh, <clears throat> a facility that is attracting uh, lacrosse teams and other youth teams to come have tournaments in, in Delaware. It's, it's a nonprofit that's been uh, building up. And um, so his property is right next to that. And he acquired another uh, 11 acres through the Delaware uh, land scam discount it was uh he was really the only uh it wasn't it didn't go out to competitive bid as it should have and uh so he plans to have it's now a 21 acre facility that he's advertised at various times to sell for five million or or for six million and uh his brother trey party in 2018 sponsored a hotel tax, a 3% tax for Kent County. And it was different from all the other uh, lodging taxes that we've had in Delaware because th these proceeds were all being sent to a private entity to Delaware Turf to provide them with over a, 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 a million dollars on, on an annual basis of extra revenue to bring in more uh, tournaments. And when uh, the, the News Journal reported on this conflict of interest of, of helping uh, Delaware Turf in the relationship with uh, John Parody's investment there, uh, Trey Parody claimed that he had no knowledge of his, uh, his brother's uh, property own, uh, ownership of Asbury Square. But the News Journal had published another article uh, five years earlier where the Parody brothers were involved in uh, a very similar conflict. They were uh, advocating for the uh, Frederica uh, interchange, which was critical to the development of, of both John Parody's property and, and Delaware turf. And, uh, and they were successful at getting that boosted up on, on, uh, Del Dot's uh, schedule. So um, when I printed those two articles side by side, it almost makes it appear that this is an act with the Parody brothers claiming uh, twice in the, in the same conflict that with no knowledge of, uh, of his brother's uh, real estate investment. Yeah, I've, I've followed this... Um... The turf, the 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 DE turf story when it came out in the news journal, and again it was one of those things where it's almost a one to one. Um, even if you don't know, even if you grant somebody, okay, maybe you don't know the specifics of your brother's real estate holdings. You know he has large real estate holdings, 
and you know that you're making decisions on the development and acquisition of of land in the county. Uh, so it's it's a one to one graft sort of Tammany Hall machine situation, uh, and to try to I, I guess the and maybe the reaction is, or the defense of it is to be expected, and that's what sort of deflects the 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 final uh, power of it. Because again, I remember there being a uh, there being a you know some drama about it, and it came up, but. You know, I don't think it's, it certainly hasn't threatened either of them, their power in Kent County or in the state. And so I wonder what the next step is. How do we take this information and sort of, yeah, I'll say it. I'll just say what I think. Weaponize it. How, do, how does it become, other than just a useful information, how does it become actionable? Does what, it do become we, what do a, we do? A high priority agenda item of the Delaware General Assembly. One of the things unique about the General Assembly that you don't have with other legislative bodies is that they're, they're literally, there's nobody looking over their shoulder. The Ethics Commission, which is contained in the rules of the House and Senate, uh, as Steve mentioned earlier, is composed of uh, the leadership of the House and the House and leadership of the Senate and the Senate. What I think should be done is that citizens should have a right to file a complaint against the legislator with the Public Integrity Commission, just as I could file a complaint against uh, County Council President Paul Clark in 2006, uh, just as I was able to raise uh, the issue of Sherry Freeberry's real estate holdings in Sussex County back in 2004. Um, and I went to a Newark City Council meeting, and you can file complaints. Citizens have a right uh, in all these ethics commissions around the state to file a complaint to to at least get some modicum of uh, public uh, uh, disclosure of this issue and and some satisfaction. You don't have that with the De Delaware General Assembly. John, and, could I ask uh, you a question about that? If because I, I really like that idea, but right now I don't, the Public Integrity Commission doesn't seem to have any teeth at all. So would we need in order to make this impactful, provide them, the legislature, of course, would have to do it, but I think the legislature is getting a little bit more progressive and you might be able to do it, provide some teeth for the Public Integrity Commission to actually do something like that. That's a good point. Uh, and Jack raises that in the Fight Delaware Corruption website when he compared the Delaware funding for the uh, Public Integrity Commission with Rhode Island. I think Rhode Island, Jack, that gets like 10 times more funding our Public Integrity Commission essentially has one person, Deborah Moreau. So they talk a good game, but we need to have more oomph, as Steve mentions, with the Public Integrity Commission, where they could hold uh, uh, tangible uh, ethical hearings on legislators who uh, violate the public trust. I can think of two back in the 80s when, uh, Steve, you might remember this, uh, when uh, J. Donald Isaacs and uh, Richard Cordy, two leading Democrats, they both got arrested for DUIs. And both of them made midnight telephone calls to the Attorney General, Charlie Oberly. I mean, t that was so unethical, but luckily it hit the papers. But there was no, uh, uh, there was no retribution to that kind of conduct. And for years, they basically had done whatever the heck they want to do down there. And it's... Uh, uh, it's, it's not a good deal. John, it's actually a good point. 
you, uh, you mentioned, uh, Rob, the Andrea Bennett situation. That's what they pretty much did, didn't they? In terms of the police pretty much sat on that until they were forced to release the information on it. This happens all too frequently. Yeah. Yeah, well, have you gauged, um, because, you know, as Steve mentioned, and I think this is the this is the opportunity to sort of take that next step because there are now uh, representatives and senators um, who are interested in uh, not using their role as much for uh, personal gain or, or, or personal power, but actually have a different sort of agenda. And they, it would seem to me that a lot of them would be more open to, um, you know, just a piece of legislation that says, okay, this this body needs to be expanded to this size and ha- and have and also have oversight over the legislature as well. And has, has there, I know you have a policy paper, I know this is being talked about, how far away are we from really legislation being reviewed that would do some of the things that you're talking about? I'm, I'm hoping... The Delaware will go, will, will <clears throat> use the inspector general concept. I feel there are so many things that have been wrong with our experience with the uh, Public Integrity Commissions. One of 26 divisions in the Department of State that has absolutely no uh, independence. The governor appoints all the members on the commission, it only has two staff. I think. It should be, be subsumed within a new uh, department, the Inspector General Department. We should have a the, the first step would be a, a state Inspector General uh, selected by a, a, an independent uh, blue, blue Ribbon Committee, and then what many states do, they have multiple inter, uh, Inspector Generals. We could potentially have a Legislative Inspector General, which uh, Illinois and Ohio both have, and um, <clears throat> we could even have an auditor inspector general instead of uh, an elected officer. Those would be uh, big changes for Delaware, but we need the kind of independence that's provided by an inspector general. Yeah, what, how, I mean, I think I would say that probably you all have a better feel for this than someone like I, and I, I have really no feel for it at all because I don't really follow the, the machinations of, um, the, the legislation that gets introduced and goes through committee. This sounds like the inspector general idea actually sounds like the, the, the best idea I've heard. But if you went into a, a meeting in Dover with legislators and, 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 and gave them this idea, would, would it sound like, uh, you know, put it on the six-year plan idea, or are people ready to tackle some of this stuff like this session and next session? Well, there is an actual bill coming up. Uh, the Delaware Coalition for Open Government has been working on a inspector general bill for the last couple of years. So uh, I have not been directly involved recently with it. But uh, this inspector general idea, I think, could be used as a foundation to attract other issues like what Jack was saying and what Steve was saying. Uh, it's going to, the last time an inspector general bill came up was back in 2007. It was introduced by uh, Republican legislator Bill Oberly, and it met opposition from Governor Minner, it met opposition from Auditor Wagner, and a, a few other cases. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a tough road to hoe 
Uh, I'm hoping that we'll get some Democratic sponsorship of it and get some um, a meaningful committee debate where we can bring up a lot of these issues and uh, keep this idea alive. So uh, we're hopeful about that, but there's going to be a lot of opposition uh, as there was back uh, 14 years ago when this bill does finally surface in the, in the General Assembly. Well, having said that, though, John, I do think um, the atmosphere is right for at least a movement towards considering such a bill. Sure. You've got progressive leadership now in control of the Senate, people who generally look askance at what has come before. I mean, you've got people like, uh, you know, uh, Brian Townsend, Dave Sicola, some more enlightened members of the General Assembly, uh, you know, including s several newcomers. And um, I do think that you should at least be able to get some pretty decent sponsorship to begin discussions of it. Will there be the challenges that always come with the people who don't want to see something like this? Sure. But you've had a turnover. So you actually have um, the people who are there have not been there as long as had been the case even just four years ago. There's been a massive turnover. Um, I think people will be more receptive to it. Um, obviously, the challenge is in the House uh, right now, I would think, because of uh, the leadership situation. However, in the body itself, I do think you have some people who would be willing to sponsor that bill. And I, I mean, ideally, you know, and I'm not a big believer in this. I'm kind of like, if you got the votes, go ahead and pass it. But if we could introduce a bill like that this year and then spend the time over the break, you know, from June until next January to have some public hearings and it's, it's up to the grassroots to really develop support for it, I think it's got a, a real shot. Of course, the devil's in the details. Um, and it'll never be exactly what we want. But I, I'm not as pessimistic. I, th I think it actually could be something that could be, be realized. Do I think it's a good idea? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you hit on something that's important, and that was going to be my next question, or sort of my, the next topic, and we can all kind of talk about it. I think the grassroots effort is going to be key. I think the two ways that that works that I can think of is on the political, the electoral end of it. And I hope that a lot of these stories and a lot of the ideas uh, for legislation become um, electoral issues where people can run on them and say, I, I think that I think we should be governed in this way based on these rules and, and they don't. And so that's that's another way to not only keep it uh, in the zeitgeist and keep it in the conversation, but actually inject it into the political uh, sort of environment. And also I see like a connection with this project in the grassroots and the transparency and oversight of the of the police and the cop bill of rights. Um, you know, we 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 don't have good oversight. Uh, mechanisms in the legislature. We don't have good oversight mechanisms at the police. Um, the you know the the fox is in the hen house in one place, and the same as the other place. And so I wonder whether you guys have thought about one um, how a lot of this material and how these issues can be moved into electoral politics realm, and also how you might be able to find um, solidarity with other folks who are who are interested in say. Uh, 
a major reform to the police bill of rights on transparency grounds, on accountability grounds? I think the inspector general bill is going to be uh, a key to attract a wide variety of of interest groups. I think uh, if we can get a bill passed that will hold uh, the members of the General Assembly accountable or have a public discussion of these issues that you mentioned, I think that's going to attract a whole lot of uh, uh, people. But what we're going to need is really somebody to champion this in the General Assembly. I saw this back in 2007 with John Kowalko. There was a bill to uh, reform a uh, committee called the Violent Crimes Compensation Committee. Uh, it was introduced in the Senate, and it got deep six in their Senate drawer by Senator Adams. John Kowalka was outraged by that. He introduced a companion bill in the House that passed. And so the bill went over to the Senate. So they had two bills in the Senate, one a House bill that passed and one a Senate bill that got deep six. That bill was able to galvanize all the uh, various groups that were uh, involved in violent crimes, uh, uh, domestic abuse, uh, uh, all kinds of anti-violence groups. And on June 30th of that year, much to the surprise of John Kowalka, the bill came up in the Senate and was passed. And that's a rare example, but it took somebody like Kowalko to challenge the Senate leadership to put an identical bill up and say, I don't care what you guys think. I, I want to do what I think is right, and I'm going to do that. And in that case, he was successful. Uh, he was then subject to some retribution. He was taken off of committees by Speaker Schwarzkopf. Uh, he was taken to the woodshed. So there's a cost to this, to taking on uh, your colleagues. And that's the real challenge, finding somebody who does not care about what that cost may be inside the General Assembly. Rob, one thing I wanted to add, because you mentioned the, the police issue as a transparency issue, one of the issues that's made me even crazier than I already am, and it's only happened just in the last few years, John, maybe you can remember how, maybe five years, is they basically removed, they exempted from FOIA, basically our payouts to all of these businesses. Uh, the, 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 we privatized the so-called Economic Development Council, and so we don't get to know what our state money is being given to and for what? I, I just, that, I thought from the very beginning that was wrong. Uh, Carney said, well, we have to do that for competitive reasons because we're you know, fighting with these other states for these jobs. But okay, trust but verify. <laughs> what are you using it for? And um, how does this really benefit the people of the state? That one just, there's still too much of that going on. And that was, an act of the legislature that did that. And I think it's time for the General Assembly in general to review this whole issue of openness and transparency and to really challenge some of these exemptions from FOIA. I'll give you another one. When the police get, when the police steal money, you know, it's called, uh, what's it called, civil forfeiture? Asset forfeiture, yeah. Or I guess it's civil asset. I think it's all, I think it's civil asset forfeiture, yeah. It all goes into a pot of money and they created a non-public body, even though the non-public body consists primarily of public officials to divvy that money up among like the different police agencies. Again, it was an act of the General Assembly. That stuff just shouldn't be allowed to happen. And I think that is an issue that, that I think can, can mobilize the grassroots. Yeah, Steve, that's a good point. That civil asset forfeiture money is, is collected by the police and then in one pocket they put in the left and they put it in their right pocket. That money should go to the 
General Assembly fund, there should be some oversight hearings about where to spend that money. But for the police to take the money from these drug dealers and then put it back in their other pocket is an egregious offense that I've never really fully understood. It just galls me. Yeah, it's not even drug dealers. It's alleged violations. Hmm, yeah. I smell some pot. You see, you seize everything that the person has in their car, even if the case never comes to trial. It's up to the person whose 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 belongings were stolen to try to get them back. It's just it's it's stealing. I can't think of any other word to describe it. But Robert, I think you really hit the nail on the head. How do we take these? Uh, expressions of dissatisfaction and make them a high priority in the Delaware General Assembly. Well, it's not easy. It's kind of like uh, making stew. You got to start somewhere. You got to make the ingredients, put the broth in there and put the uh, burner on. So I think we're at the stage now where we put the burner on and hopefully we can attract other groups and other folks to make this a high priority for the Delaware General Assembly, where they won't just disregard these issues and go on to something else. So that is a real long-term challenge that we face. Yeah, I really do believe it comes down to finding people that just have a different outlook. I mean, you, you were talking about all of these different, and I, I just call it the, the public-private partnership scam. You know, you have public, you know, you, 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 you take the public money, but then because you have to be competitive, you make it secret. Or you, what they did, they do it in Wilmington all the time because of our, our mayor. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have to find activists and organizers and advocates and candidates and, 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 and representatives and elected officials who are not looking to figure out a way to, keep, to, to, to continue the static sort of status quo and manage everything as if it were a business and protect the people who are are are, are because it's it's inherently corrupt. Um, whether it's the police and and the suspicion and the secrecy there, or whether it's funneling money to private enterprise or creating creating markets so that private enterprise can more easily move money around. Um, all of this is open to corruption, and if if we can sort of excite. Uh, an idea in people that there is an alternative way, I think this fits this fits right into it because it's 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 demonstrating in a real way uh, people who have you know, who who have developed a who have developed a, an environment of mistrust and it 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 it, it hinders everything um, and I think this is a huge part of it. I want Jack to maybe describe because one of the things I think is kind of cool about this project is you can become a signatory to it. Um, you can just put your name to it and help sort of stand in solidarity um, with everybody who's doing this work and also the coalition that we're going to try to build uh, with other things. So, uh, Jack, can you talk a little bit about um, the signatory process and what you're trying to achieve by, uh, by people um, signing off on it? Yes, we have a, a link on our website to, uh, to sign on. Uh, we have uh, over over 30 people who signed up so far to be listed as a Delaware citizen against corruption. And um, Rob, I was really glad that when you brought up the analogy of, of the police, because I think that's that's very powerful. This is a uh, 
it's a, it's an issue of powerful people being above the law. And one reason that that I started engaging in this, I, I feel that, uh, and and the reason I feel it's so timely, is uh, is because of the experience that we had at the national level with the Trump administration over the last four years. In terms of, we saw a level of public corruption at the national level that uh, we, we've never seen in our history before. And now that's uh, out unraveling in the in, in the media as well. And uh, I think people are becoming increasingly aware that uh, that no one should be above the law and that we, we need a uh, process to, to oversee uh, both police and our legislators and, uh, and others with power in our government. So I, I think this is very, uh, very timely. Yeah, I, I want to encourage everyone, uh, and we're going to link to the, the, the website, and we'll also link specifically to the page where um, you can put your name to it. Um, I, I know that um, it's sort of new for Delaware to actually stand up, um, you know, if you're sort of outside the media or outside of organizing circles, to put your name onto something and say, yeah, I'm ready to confront, you know, this thing, um, because we're an insular sort of small group of active sort of people that are politically adjacent. Um, so people have to make their own decisions about that. I, I do understand that. But I really, I strongly encourage people to take a look at this and just be a signatory and say, you know, this is a, this is a part of something that I want to try to to stand up against and change. We're just, we're just asking for their uh, for their name and their zip code. We're not uh, uh, trying to raise money on the website right now. We're uh, just just identifying people as Delaware citizens against corruption. That's right. Yeah, I do want to. Uh, maybe we can have an open conversation here towards the end to see sort of what your feeling are, is. I, I know, I, I do believe that Trump, that the last four years at the national level, because it's been, um, you know, what what would Curtis say something like, it's been bombarding us with hysteria in our minds because we're seeing it um, so blatantly and so sort of uh, in, in, a, in a really vulgar sort of manner. Um, however, I would I would challenge people to think about the, the work that this group is doing and, and also just the things that you're seeing around you. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, two brothers in the, you know, that have big, one, one has big real estate interests, one works in government. You know, we have it here in the city. We have a mayor who was basically the public face of a, of a huge real estate development group for 20 years. And now is the mayor. And, and, and that stuff is happening today. It was pointed out to me. Um, uh, it was pointed out to me at a, at a demonstration last week that the old YWCA building that was on King Street, um, that was a, a place for you know uh, single moms possibly or or moms who were uh, either unhoused or were in abusive situations, uh, and now that building has been knocked down and there's another BPG you know, high end condominiums whatever you want to call it. Um, so. I, I don't think this type of governance, if you want to call it that, I don't think it's it's exclusive to people who are obviously crooks, like the Trump family. I don't think it's exclusive to people who we expect to have ties to business, um, like Republicans or reactionaries. 
Um, I think it's uh, there's a lot of conservative uh, Democrats or professional elite Democrats in this area who are just as bad or worse. Uh, and they do it in the name of, you know, just having another fancy restaurant on Market Street or they do it in the name of being able to put up a hotel, you know, in Kent County or whatever. Um, so, you know, that part of it, I, I, and I'm interested in what you guys think about that. Like I said, I, I do believe what Jack said is, 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 is true. I think that because at the national level, the suspicion and the corruption and the conspiratorial thinking really has just has just accelerated so much that I think th th this time is a good time to put these sort of ideas in front of people. Um, but I hope that people understand that the people the, the, the people we're up against in this um, aren't in a political party right now. The, the things that we're talking about doing, fighting corruption when we're talking about fight Delaware corruption, uh, you know that that fight really isn't being there's there's no example of that even happening in our government. We're trying to create that now, so I, I'm I I'm always hesitant to put it in sort of political party terms or candidate terms like this one against that one, because it's us against it's us against that. Um, there's a status quo and there's a way of doing things that people think is just fine that I actually don't think is fine. So I try to frame it like in a little bit of a different way. I wonder what you guys think about that. No worries. 15 years ago, the city of Wilmington had a vision for developing down where the ShopRite is across the Christina River. They wanted to take 62 private properties, uh, take them, and then give that land to another private property owner. One of the owners, uh, Ed Osborne, fought that. Uh, he owned a uh, small car repair shop down there. And he led the effort in Delaware General Assembly, and he took on the governor. Uh, he took on all the members of city council, except for uh, uh, the only person he had on his side was uh, Charles Potter. Uh, they voted 12 to 1 to take all these properties under eminent domain and give it to another private property owner. He was able, through kind of the same bull dedogginess that Jack Curran has, uh, to fight that, and he eventually won that uh, uh, back in 2009 when Markel got elected. But he had a self-interest in it, but he got involved, directly involved in fighting City Hall, fighting Governor Minner, and he eventually was successful. A lot of people don't feel they have the talent to do that or the confidence to do that, but uh, you'd be surprised at the talent and abilities that people have to take on the vested interest, and Ed Osborne, I think, is a good example of that. I think also... Um... Things have changed. I mean, when you talk about political parties and what have you, the Republican Party, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, they are, they're not serious legislators in Dover. I mean, you could argue maybe Mike Ramone, and he's he's one of the ones with the ethical challenges that the, the Jack, you know, so aptly elucidates over on his website. What is happening, and this is why I'm not that pessimistic, you've always had people, they might go down there as Democrats, identify as Democrats, mainly because they come from districts that are overwhelmingly democratic, but they, to a large degree, part of what they went down there for was to be able to, in some way, feather their own nest. That is what I see changing over the last two cycles. I mean, it actually began back when uh, Brian Townsend defeated uh, Tony DeLuca. I mean, that was a classic example of it. I mean, Tony DeLuca goes down there, 
He gets Tom Sharp, his, uh, his construction trade union buddy, to get him a job as the, <laughs> the so-called labor law enforcement officer, you know, basically throwing civil rights complaints into the trash. Um, they even pulled a, an end run to make sure that DeLuca's salary had no federal money involved with it so that he wouldn't be in violation of any Hatch Act things. So you've seen people like him disappear. John Viola, another union guy who got a job over there, gone. Medina Anton Wilson has taken, you know, his place. You've got, um, you know, Marie Pinckney, Dave McBride, gone, living in Lewis, supposedly representing, you know, a Newcastle area district. You are a Quinn Johnson, a dino if there ever was one, gone, replaced by Sharia Moore. You're getting more and more of these. And I think you're getting to the point. I mean, John always talks about the lonely plight of John Kowalko, and it, it is true. Um, oh, that's another one. You know, um, my, you know, uh, Earl Jakes gone. I mean, these are these are important, not just from a progressive legislative standpoint, but to the extent that this whole idea of transparent government that serves the people is part of that agenda. You're getting there. You know, John Kowalko is not alone anymore. Um, you know, th you've got some critical mass going. And that's happened over the last two cycles. So I really like what Jack's doing. I really like the idea of, you know, doing something like an inspector general or pushing for that. I don't think you're going to get the pushback. Now, you might get it from the governor's office. I mean, who knows what John Carney stands for other than, than budget smoothing? I mean, that's what he stands for. But... Other than that, I mean, I think you've got a much more receptive General Assembly. And it's up to us, first of all, to keep our progressive legislators, and I thankfully have three of them now, believe it or not, you know, on their toes. Make sure that that's, they don't fall prey to what always happens down, or has happened down there, but also to really push them to consider these kinds of initiatives. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That's why, you know, these are the folks that are coming in with sort of a different, a whole different sort of mindset. It's not... You know, I'm not going there to broker deals, uh, you know, for for economic benefit to, you know, smooth the budget, you know, uh, whatever. Like I'm going down to to represent my community and try to get things uh, governed the way that the community would 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 want not, you know, to to transfer uh, public goods into private hands and have them take care of it or make some kind of deal Um that's the most important thing. And that's why I think stuff like this really keeps up that pressure. And I hope everybody sort of gets the opportunity to, to sign on to this, um, to get involved with um, other journalism. Uh, you know, we're doing stuff at the call. We're going to be covering this in the call, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, just continuing to keep the pressure up because it's not going to stop. Uh, John, you made it uh, such a good point. Like, it is like a stew, right? You got to reduce it. It's got to It's got to sit. You know, you got to keep and, and, the, and, the, and it has to simmer, simmer, simmer. You can't turn the, the flame off. And, you know, that's why I hope some people use uh, this kind of journalism, this kind of organizing work to continue to keep up the keep up the fight. So I appreciate you guys joining today. Very right, much. Thank you for having us. Uh, you did a great job. Great host. And uh, uh, I think uh, we're on the starting of something bigger and better, Jack. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I want you to, we're going to have the uh, the URL to this website and the sign up in the show notes. 
Um, go take a look at it. Uh, also, take a look at some of the work we've done on um, the Simba arrest case, the 14-year-old boy who um, I believe is going to turn 15 this month, uh, who was arrested in Wilmington. Uh, we got to get those charges dropped. So uh, take a look at the Delaware Call, the stuff we did. We did a Drop the Charges podcast episode. Uh, get yourself up to speed on what's going on there. And uh, again, as these gentlemen said today, pressure your representatives. Call them. Uh, you know, if there's COVID, you might not be able to show up. But, you know, if there is a situation where you could show up, show up. Tell them what you think. Um, you know, keep the pressure up all over the place because we can make this uh, better if we do it together. You know, John mentioned uh, the gentleman who fought the state uh, over his small uh, shop in Southbridge when they did the riverfront. And people don't feel like they can do that by themselves because it's very scary. And it is very scary. Maybe, you know, you've never done it before. Um, but if everybody does it together, it actually has a lot more power than if one person does it by themselves. So uh, I hope everybody takes a look at this, jumps on board, and helps fight Delaware corruption. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Left is best.